0: Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23, Psalm 23, and we're going to be on our story of David, and here's the good thing for David's story, is that there's an ending. But the ending of David's story is not what we would expect. It is a story in which he began a great first half of his life, but then in the second half, it did not end as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a psalm that he wrote at some point in his life. It could have been at the beginning, or it could have been at the middle, or maybe even at the end of his life as he's recollecting uh, what he went through. But he reminds us of his understanding of God. And as we close our, uh, our life of David's story, this is the psalm that I come back to. So let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for these words, these poetic words that are written on the pages of Scripture to remind us and to remind David who you are to us, that we are like sheep. And that you are our shepherd. So I pray, Lord, that as we look through this, that, that we can come back to a point of understanding what it means to live our lives well. So many people have lived their lives. They started well, but then they ended in disgrace and shame. I pray, Lord, that we, through this passage, will learn how to finish well. So that we can cross the finish line. To raise our hands in victory. To be declared Well done, my good and faithful servant. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to ask you a question. How do you finish well? How do you finish well in life? And this is a great question, isn't it, as we get older. But as many of us in our lives, we look back, and instead of finishing well, we we finish or we ask ourselves these questions, only if I had done this. Or only if I didn't do this, my life would be such and such. We live with a sense of regret. We live with a sense of sort of missed opportunities. And sometimes we live with this mindset that only if I made the right choice, I would be a better person now. The reality is this. Sometimes the choices we think we uh, want to get or or the wishes that we have, even if we get those wishes, it's not what we thought it would be. I heard a story um, many years ago about a husband and wife in their 60s. And they're celebrating their 40th anniversary. Knowing his wife loved antiques, he took his wife to an antique store. And on the shelf was this brass oiled lamp. And so they bought this lamp, and and they uh, took it home, and she unwrapped it. And like any good antique owner would do, she began to polish it. And as she begins to polish this lamp, out pops this genie. And this genie says to both of them, Whatever you wish for, I will give to you. So this genie, after thanking them, looked at the wife first, and then asked the wife, "What, What do you want? And the wife thought for a moment, and she said, you know what I want? I want an all-expense-paid, first-class uh, trip around the world on a cruise with, with her husband as they celebrated the 40th anniversary. And in an instant, shazam, as the genie uh, snapped his fingers, instantly she was presented with tickets for the entire journey, plus expenses, side trips, dinners, and shopping, etc. She got her wish. So that was the husband's turn. So the husband uh, thought for a moment, and looked at his uh, wife, and said, hmm, here's what I want. I want a female companion 30 years younger than me. And boom, he snapped his fingers instantly. uh, This man turned 90 years old. He got what he wished for. (laughs) Here's the point of the story. Sometimes what we wish for, we get it, but it's not what we expect. That we think that this is going to make us happy, but what ends up happening is that the very thing that we think is going to make us happy makes us miserable. Most of us, probably at some point in our life, we thought, oh man, if I met this, meet this guy, I'm going to be married and I'm going to be the happiest woman on earth. Or, or a guy says the same thing about, if I meet this woman and, and we're going to have kids, we're going to be the happiest person, a ha- happiest couple. And through the stages of life, we realize this person doesn't, is not the source of my happiness, but in many ways can be the source of my misery. Or what about that job that we thought that we would get? Only if I get this job, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this much money, I'm going to get it to this particular uh, uh, ladder of success. And, and, and we get there and we end that our that life's dream of this pursuit of this job has given us a heart attack or stress, or burnout. How many of us, as we think about life, we get to the end and realize life is not what we thought it was? And, and I think for all of us as, as, as Christians, you know, the goal is this, that we want to end our life better than when we started. That as Christians, we want our life to progress on an upward scale. That ultimately, for us, we want to live our lives with these final words. Or God whispers to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. But David's story is a little bit different. See, uh, the the story of David is is in many ways kind of a a story of a real man. Uh, when, When he was a little boy, God had called him to be the next king of Israel. But the thing that separated David from everyone else was a simple truth. That David was a man who pursued God. He was a man after God's own heart. And we know that David's story is is pretty amazing because after he has been called, this king who is his rival named Saul uh, looked at David as his competitor. This little boy did some amazing, miraculous things. As a little boy, he was able to kill lions and tigers and bears to defend his little flock of sheep. And when the battle came with Goliath, nobody was willing to fight this giant. And out steps this little David with a slingshot in his hand. He says, I will fight this giant because he is defaming, defiling my God. And in that one victorious uh, scene that all of us can imagine, he swings his sling and he shoots the rock. And the rock hits the giant exactly where, right in the middle where he's vulnerable. And the giant is killed. And David becomes the hero. Throughout his life, we see this amazing trajectory in which God has now installed him as the next king of Israel. Saul is, is, is di- died in shame, and now David is at the pinnacle of his success. And when we look at the first half of his story, that's the story in which a young man who was pursuing God was rewarded for that pursuit, fulfilling the mission, the vision that God had given him. But the second half of his story is a little different, isn't it? Even though God had given him everything he had ever dreamed and desired, God said to David, you will oversee all this land as my shepherd over my sheep. And in a scene in which we see a few weeks ago, we saw David. Instead of going out to battle, when all the kings were out to battle, David decides to stay home. And as he's staying home, he's taking a midnight stroll outside and as he's looking over his his kingdom as he's on a hill he sees a woman bathing. and he says I want that in that split second David takes this woman to be his in, in, in that sense to have this affair she gets pregnant and so David starts to panic so he kills her husband who happens to be one of the most faithful soldiers that David has. And David's life is turned upside down. Well, we know the story after that, don't we, that Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and says, you took this, this little lamb that belonged to this poor farmer. And David, as he hears the story, he says, we need to kill that guy who stole, the rich man who stole that little poor man's uh, uh, baby sheep. And Nathan points the finger at David and says, you are that man. And at that moment, David's life is brought to a state of confession. And he confesses before God. And we have that beautiful Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me. So what happens after that? Well, we know that after that particular event, That from chapter 13 to 24, David's second half becomes even more miserable. Here's what happened. Immediately after that event, uh, we see that David has other children. And in one particular scene, his son named uh, uh, Amon falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. And it's sort of this incestuous relationship that begins to flourish. And Amon rapes his half-sister. And he takes her, and she is in shame, and he discards her. He uses her. But Tamar has a brother named Absalom. And Absalom defends the honor of his sister Tamar. And and, and one night when uh, Absalom uh, uh, devises a a plan where he invites all of the king's sons to come to a party, but really he only invites one, and that's Amon. And when Amon's going to the party, he is ambushed by Absalom's soldier, is killed. That story reminds us of what sin does, not only to us, but to those who are connected to us. And, and, and as a result of that, war begins to break out, and Absalom then tries to overthrow David. And, and builds an army to overthrow his, his, his father. And so his father now is on the run, just like he was when he was a little boy, running away from Saul. He's going from cave to cave because his son is trying to kill him. Ironically, Absalom is described the same way he's described as Saul. That Absalom was the most handsome man in all of Israel. There was no blemish from his hair to his toe. This man was perfect. And yet, this man, Absalom, his own son, Wants to overthrow David and chases him like a wild animal. Well, Joab, one of uh, David's soldiers, captures uh, Absalom and throws three spears into, into Absalom. And Absalom is killed. It's interesting, at the end of that, rather than David celebrating, he says in 1 Samuel chapter 18.33, Oh, my son Absalom, my son. My son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. His family is torn apart. And later on, we see that David's, uh, uh, one of his other people wants to revolt. And over and over again, you see everything falling apart. That the second half of David's life is not the same as the first glorious part. David has to fight over his kingdom. And eventually, we see in 1 Kings, David is an old man, shivering, has a a maid taking care of him, and he dies. I think about David's life. David was a man after God's own heart. He was pursuing the things of God, but in the second part of his life, something was missing. Instead of David finishing well, he finished poorly. So here's a question for all of us. How do we finish well? How do we get to the point in life where, instead of looking back with regret, that we look back with a sense of accomplishment, a sense of peace, a sense of "Thank you, Lord, for the life well-lived? I think a glimpse of where we can get this idea comes from his psalm that is probably the most read psalm of all of the Bible. Even if you're not a, a Christian or a regular churchgoer, you probably heard the psalm because it's almost in every movie scene in a funeral, the, the priest or the person uh, doing the eulogy uses the psalm. The psalm is very popular because it's, it's, a, it's a powerful reminder of God's position in our lives. And I think in this particular psalm, we are given sort of the secret of how we can finish well. And I think David is the one who penned these words. And yet, if David followed these words, I think he would have lived life well, he would have died well, and he would have been in eternity well. So let's take a look at the psalm again. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, one of the things about David, his role, in the kingdom of Israel, was that he was called to be a shepherd. Isn't it interesting that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, when God uh, declares him to be the next king, he says, even in times past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them back. And the Lord said this to David, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be the ruler of them all. David's role as king was to be a shepherd. It is interesting, isn't it, that uh, in Psalm 78, 30, 72, it says, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. You know, uh, a shepherd is one of the most important people for the sheep, right? And I'm not sure if you know this about sheep, but I'll just give you a little background. Uh, to understand the Psalms, you have to understand through the eyes of the sheep. First of all, sheep's lack a sense of direction, uh, they get lost easy. Sheep are are not the brightest creatures, so they can just wander off by themselves. So, a shepherds' role was to sort of uh, us to bring the sheep back in. Secondly, the sheep are defenseless. The sheep have no natural defenses. They have no poisonous, uh, uh, you know, skin. They have no like you know ways to fight off. So they're very vulnerable. The third thing about a sheep is this: they're really stupid. <laughs> They're so stupid that they would eat things that are poisonous, and they would wander away, they would fall into a ditch. And so the role of the shepherd was to keep the safe, sheep safe. David's role for the nation of Israel was that. He was to be the shepherd of all of Israel. By the way, just a quick thought. Do you know what the word pastor means? It means the shepherd. That our job as, as leaders and pastors of a church is to shepherd God's people. is to make sure that, that our sheep are, are, are well taken care of. And so in this psalm, we're given three things about how to live our lives well. And the first thing is this. Finishing well in life comes when we trust in God's provision. Finishing well in life comes when we trust in God's gracious provision. See, David's role was to be a shepherd, but he real recognized that there was a better and a greater shepherd than he was. So look at this in Psalm, 70, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I think the first recognition for us as Christians is this, that we have the tendency as sheep to shepherd ourselves. So here's the question that I think all of us need to ask is, who is your shepherd? Who is it the one that that guides you and directs you in your life? You know, the Bible uh, reminds us that all we are like sheep have gone astray. In other words, we tend to shepherd ourselves. We are the ones who provide for ourselves. David recognized that even though he was the supreme ruler of all of Israel, it was God who shepherded him. I love that in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is your shepherd? Now, of course, we can easily repeat this: "On the Lord is my shepherd, but truly, who is the one that you trust in more than anybody else? And the answer to that, I think, for all of us, really got, comes back to the same person, right? It's me. Me, myself, and I. We shepherd our own lives. And here's the danger is that when we shepherd our own lives, what ends up happening is we make the same mistake over and over again. Because here's the reality, is that we don't know what life is all about. We think we do. The more accomplished you are, the smarter you are, the wealthier you are, all these things that that are trappings that that basically make us trust in our own provision. And, And here's the point that David makes. Even though he is the king of all of Israel, He lived his life with the sense that God is our shepherd. And what happens when God is our shepherd? First, we don't have anything that we lack. He says, I shall not be in want. In other words, I don't have anything that that Because God is the one who's going to provide for me. And I think for a lot of Christians, the reason that we don't trust God is because we don't trust that he can provide. God will not make you be in want but the, but the other thing look at the beautiful imagery. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He gives you rest. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. The role of a shepherd is to take care of you, to take care of the sheep. You know, so often I live my life thinking I can take care of myself. I'm self-reliant. You know, I, I, I have a good job, I have, I have a house. I and I, I, I have this mindset sometimes that I really don't need God, even though I would never say that. I, that's the way I live my life. And that's the way in which many people live their lives. Swindoll writes, "Who, by the way, is your shepherd? In whom do you trust when you're feeling g- caught in the daily grind of uncertainty? To whom do you churn for direction? You have many choices you first go to your pastor, your psychologist, your close friend, your coach, your priest, your teacher, how easy to forget that they are sheep too. As important and necessary as each of these people may be, they can never take the place of the good shepherd in your life. When you finally come to a place where all your life and all its details placed under Christ's care, you can say with deep abiding certainty, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, I think the key to being a good sheep is surrender. But like sheep, we tend to wander away from our shepherd. But you know what God says here? If you want the Lord to be your shepherd, you have to be willing to surrender everything. Surrender your your hopes, your dreams, your job, your family. And once we surrender, guess what God does? God takes those things and he gives you something even better. Many years ago, I heard this one poem that I memorized. It says, one thing that God took from me, all the things I valued most. Till I was left empty-handed, all my glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth highway, grieving in my rags and poverty. Till I heard his voice saying, lift up your empty hands to me. So I, had my head, uh, so I put my face toward heaven. And he filled them with the store of his own transcendent riches until they can contain no more. And at last I comprehended. My mind's stupid and dull. That God could not pour his riches into hands that were already full. The reason God wants you to let go, to surrender, is because he wants to provide for you what is better. But Some of you say, no, no, I know what's better for me. I, this job is better for me, or this way is better for me. I love taking shortcuts because that's the way I want to go. But God says, no, if you take a shortcut, it's going to lead to a dead end. If you take this job, it's going to do this. If you're going to do that, it's going to. And, and, and what David recognized early was that he lived his life with a sense of understanding that God was a provider. Only time he didn't was when he stole somebody else's sheep. So, the first thing that I want you to re- remind you is this that if you want to finish well, you have to trust in God's provision that God knows what's good, God knows what's right, and He wants to provide for you in every way. And your response is to simply let go, simply surrender. There's a second point that He makes. Because this imagery of a shepherd with sheep is so beautiful. Imagine he, as, as a shepherd is walking along, and he's going from one pasture to another. And as he's walking through, he has to go through this valley called the wadi. Uh, when I was a, a seminary student, so I had the uh, opportunity to go to Israel. Uh, so I went to Jordan, I went to Egypt, I went to Israel. And we got to walk the terrain. And sometimes you don't understand the terrain until... You're actually there because as you're reading the Bible, your imagination thinks, that oh, this is what it's gonna uh, kind of looks like." But when you look at Jerusalem, Jerusalem is literally on a hill. The city—that's why they call it "city on a hill." Jerusalem was was a city that was on top, and so the way to go from one place to another is you have to go through these valleys called wadis. And wadis are interesting because they're these like caverns in which it's dangerous. Because that's where thieves hide. That's where uh, you can get mugged. And you, you know the story of, of, of the Jerusalem to Jericho on Jericho Road. There's a, a, a guy who gets mugged. That's, that's near this, this wadi. Well, to take the sheep from one place to another, you have to go through this dangerous place. The other danger is not just these, these criminals that can lurk. There's also wild animals. But one of the most dangerous things are flash floods. And what ends up happening is it, there could be this rainstorm that comes, and the water washes very quickly. It's almost like this flash flood, and, and you can literally wash away. And so the sheep have to trust in the shepherd because the shepherd sees all this and is the one who guides. And here's the point, that in the moment of death, that if you want to die well, you have to trust in God's guiding presence that you have to be willing to follow and hold closely to to god himself and so here's verse four even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The second thing that David says is this, that if we want to finish well in life, that we have to be guided by God's presence, because God is the one who's going to guide us through the darkest times of our lives. You know, when things get dark, sometimes that's when we turn our back on God. I love this imagery. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear no evil. As David uses his imagery of guiding the sheep across a dangerous canal, it reminds us this, that God guides us all the way from life to death. And you know what, for a Christian, it's not how we live our lives that matter, just matters, but it's also how we die that matters. Because here's the thing, as followers of Jesus, that when we die, we do not see death as something to be feared. We don't see death as something to run away from. The difference between a Christian dying and somebody who's not a Christian dying is simply this, that when we as Christians die, that we recognize that this is a transition going through this valley into something that is better, a greener pasture. And so, when a Christian dies, there's a sense of hope. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of comfort because God is the one Who's guiding us. The only future that is guaranteed for all all of you is death. And what's sad for so many of us is that when people who have accomplished a lot in their life, billionaires, who are part of the the, the 1%, who have accomplished everything, at the end of their life, they don't want to die. They're so fearful. If you've ever stories of people who, who have died, who had everything, and here's the thing that I, 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 I recognize is this, that if no, there is no God, then there is no justice. Because here's the bottom line of reality of life is that life is unfair. And if you look at the ones who have and the ones who have not, the ones who have not are a lot more than the ones who have. And what ends up happening is if we live our lives, most of us feel that there was injustice. Imagine this. The reason I believe in God is because I believe that there is ultimate justice. When you look at people who've been cheated on, lied to, beaten, murdered, if there was no God, then you have to ask yourself, okay, but then, then reality of life is just unfair. And, and if it's unfair, then what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to cheat everybody I can so I can make it more fair for me. But for a Christian, no matter what happens the reason I can celebrate death is because I believe that there's an eternity beyond death. He says this, the next thing, that when we finish well in eternity comes when we live by His guaranteed promise, that there is a promise that God gives. And this promise is simply this, that God will prepare something better than what this world has to offer. Notice this in verse 5. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house forever. Imagine these sheep going from one pasture to someplace even better. That's what Jesus does for us. He takes us from one place to another. And here's where our hope lies. And here's the message of the gospel. That for us as Christians, we have the greatest, the best news ever. Because this life is not all there is. That there's a better life. There's a life of eternity where goodness and kindness dwells where we are filled with this anointing of oil, meaning uh, we're, we're cleansed, we are fed, this cup overflows, we are sitting before the banquet of God, and here's the thing that we celebrate. The reason that we don't have to fear death is because beyond death is a better life. David recognized, even though he was the king of Israel, even though he had everything he could have, that the greater thing was God himself surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and then he says this as, as the ultimate sort of capstone of his life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as Christians we're reminded that to finish well that we have to keep our eyes focused on Jesus that we have to keep our eyes focused on eternity. Because if we lose sight of eternity, you know what happens? Our life becomes miserable. Because somebody else will always do better than you. Somebody else will be always smarter than you. Somebody else will always have more than you. But if you recognize that in eternity, all of us can have more than what we could ever desire and that God himself will be our, our presence. And the promise of God is that the, as we follow Him, that this world is not our home. Two missionaries were coming home from 50 years of being on the mission field. And they were on this large ship. And as they were ready to uh, dock on, on their port, they were just recounting their lives. 50 years of hardship of suffering, proclaiming Jesus to people that that were oftentimes obstinate or hearts were hardened, and yet they were faithful. Inside that ship, there was also a very famous person, a president. And as the ship was docking, they looked over the bow, and what they saw was they saw this great parade of people. With banners and streamers yelling and screaming up whole band was, was playing music. And as the president started to walk down the steps, people were just clapping. They were so excited to see the head of state. And when this 50-year-old, this old couple of served many years in, in the mission field started walking down, there was nobody. Not even their family or supporters. And as we were walking down, they looked around for people. No crowd to welcome them. No accolades and praise of a a job well done. And the old man, missionary, became bitter and said, God, we served you for so long. How can you do this to us? How can you treat us like this? We have nobody here. And he started complaining to his wife. He started complaining to God. Then his wife, understanding the life's eternal perspective, said, honey, we are not home yet. Honey, we're not home yet. This world is not our home. That once we enter the presence of God, that's when the celebration begins, that's when the parade happens. That the world that we live in is just a place in which God allows us to shepherd God's people for the present so that they can be ushered into eternity. And here's the great news of the gospel is that the gospel is good news because there's hope for eternity. And we get to bear that. I think the reason David didn't have a good second half was because he lost perspective of that. That his physical Earthly needs dominated him over his eternal perspective. I want to encourage you. Some of you in this room are maybe struggling physically. And you're wondering, when when is this pain going to go away? Others of you are struggling because of your jobs. Maybe you're just working 90, 100 hours a week. Your family's being neglected. Your kids are astray. And sometimes life gets so overwhelming. You begin to wonder, God. What is this life? It's what's this rat race. And God reminds you that you don't need to shepherd yourself. That you need to surrender everything. That the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And as you go through the stages of life and as as you're one day closer to death, and the reality is this, every day you wake up, you're one day closer to death. Is that kind of a morbid thought? Uh, I, I celebrated my birthday earlier this month, you know. I turned 53 years old. I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm closer to death than birth, and the reality is, wow, that's that's for some people, that's like, oh, that's pretty sad. But I look at it and say, you know what? For these 50 years that God has given me, I'm so thankful for the people that I've been able to influence and impact for the kingdom of God, and I'm not dead yet. <laughs> but when I get to that point, I can look back and God can look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So to realize this, guys, that when you don't have God as your shepherd, you do what you want. When you have God as your shepherd, I shall not be it.